Today's episode features an array of creepy and allegedly true stories for you to enjoy and have nightmares to remember. If you have a scary story and you want to hear it narrated on this show, send it to me at forum.creepydystopia.com. With that said, let's begin. A story by Lou PLS My boyfriend and I were camping in the woods in March, and we heard screaming sounds in the bushes that I believed were our friends who had planned to meet us, since this is how they had always greeted us in the past. But they never came out of the bush. I decided I didn't want to camp any longer because there was a slug in the tent. So we packed up, walked through the woods in the dark, snapping twigs behind us the whole way until we got to the exit of the woods and suddenly running footsteps behind us. We both ran screaming and got to our friend's house and he was still lying on the couch in his jammies, was going to get ready so I'm not sure what those screaming sounds were or what followed us. But all I know is that even three months later, I still have to sleep with the lights on. A story by Zakalik 612 So a different buddy of mine, who is also interested in UFOs and stargazing, went down to Minnehaha Falls in Minneapolis, which is very adjacent to the airport. We were in the dog park area, so we arrive a little before sunset. There are all these ancient remains from when it was named Fort Snelling, which look like old-school rock outposts. We discovered one and sat on it. We hadn't seen each other in a few years since I had relocated out of state. So we're just getting caught up. It's late at night. There are a lot of stars out, and we're smoking hash and stargazing. As we glance out, we see a really brilliant star. We're guessing what star planet it is since, once again, we stargaze a lot and know what's what. So we watch it for about five minutes and it doesn't move. So we return to smoking and conversing. I glance back after about five to ten minutes and the light has vanished from where it was which was east of us over the horizon. Then we see this big light streaming through the trees. And it's across the Mississippi River. It was almost as if it was teasing us. Like when we moved left to get a closer look. It moved right, and when we moved right, it moved left. Then this crap happened. We're in the field area. With a lot of trees separating us from the river. With the light straight over the river, and all of a sudden we see this extremely brilliant light rise up over the treetops. One very strong light on the front of the ship was operating as a spotlight, scanning the ground back and forth. So there's a spotlight in front, two dimmer lights at rear, and a dark triangle in the middle. It's probably less than a hundred yards away, on all three sides. It is completely quiet and measures 40 to 50 feet in length. So it comes over the tree line, scanning the ground. And we panic out, astonished. I yell, we're absolutely being snatched right now. Buddy, and I start trembling. So suddenly the spotlight shines on us. And we feel electrical pinches and chills. When the lights touched us, they shut them off, leaving just three faint lights on all three sides. It gradually moved away from us. And we could see what seemed to be exhaust flowing out the rear. Which I can only describe as billowing invisible rainbows. It looked as if you dropped oil in water and it turned into an iridescent rainbow. So it slowly flew away from us and overflew the airport in the incorrect direction. Forming an X with the runways. We watched it slowly go to the horizon. Sit there for a time and finally disappear from sight. By far the most bizarre UFO I've ever seen. It's unusual since that week in Minneapolis. There were supposed to be test flights for a stealth bomber jet. But this wasn't one of them. And even stealth bombers make noise, particularly up close. We searched up footage of the aircraft they were testing. And it was clearly not a bomber. I honestly believe there were military personnel aboard. And it was most likely a man-made UFO. Such as TR-3B or something. A story by Paranormal Voice. 
I traveled to Pike National Forest in Colorado for a summer field biology camp the summer following my sophomore year of high school. It was amazing since I had never gone camping before. I had a little two-person tent that I shared with a schoolmate. We met this kid at camp and were fast friends. His parents were affluent, and his tent, which was about 10 feet away from us, was large, like a 10-person tent. The night before this occurrence, a massive windstorm passed through the valley, completely destroying his massive tent, mine. On the other hand, was alright since it was low to the ground. Anyway, he slept in our already crowded tent for the remainder of the time. I slept closest to the tent's entrance since I needed to urinate in the middle of the night and didn't want to have to clamber over other people. So the night this all happened, I awoke with no clue what time it was, walked outside to the jungle, peed, and climbed back into the tent. I was lying there for a while when there was a lightning storm above, cloud to cloud, as I stood there watching the light illuminate my tent. I began to hear whispers. A female was speaking back and forth. I attempted to understand what it was saying, but it was completely inaudible. The muttering became closer and closer until it was very next to the tent. Near to my right ear, it just ceased to exist. I didn't hear any footsteps or anything else. Then, all of a sudden, the tent was illuminated by lightning, and shadows of individuals were thrown onto the tent's side. I'm going to puke. That's when the chanting started. It sounded like another language. And it was all feminine. I just closed my eyes, slid beneath my sleeping bag, and placed my hands over my ears. After breakfast the following day, we all returned to the tent to change, and the new man who was now living with us remarks, Quite crazy last night, right? Which elicited my response. The lightning, no. The freaking scary ass chanting. I believe this area is cursed or something, he says, so it wasn't just me. But the fact that someone else heard it and we could discuss it helped. Every time I go camping, I stop drinking any liquids two hours before bedtime so I don't have to get up in the middle of the night to urinate. A story by Icebergeltis 2 My family and I were camping on the edge of the cliffs when we began to hear this guttural howling sounds coming from the cliffs. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard. We were intrigued, so we made the lengthy trek to the cliff to see if we could identify it as we came closer. The music increased louder and louder until it drowned out everything else. We could hardly hear each other when we were shouting at each other. The sound appeared to be traveling up the cliffs from the beach below. Yet it sounded like a combination of what I would describe as a mechanical sound and a big creature wailing in misery. We were all filled with unexplainable fear and made our way out of there as quickly as we could. The noise didn't get any quieter as we went back to our tent. It remained deafeningly loud. The weirdest thing was that no one near us could hear it. We inquired about and monitored people throughout the day and night, but there was no response. We were the only ones who could hear it, which was incredible given the noise, which made the earth shake. It was one of the oddest things we'd ever seen. And I can't help but think it was a mass hallucination or something. A story by Stay Healthy 247 Or sitting around a lovely huge fire with about 15 other individuals, sharing tales when it's my time. I relate a tale about one of the canyons seen from this people's land. Of course, it's late at night. My tale is genuine. My buddies and I were trapped in a windstorm in that canyon, and trees were tumbling down left and right. Enormous 30 to 40 feet lodgepole pine trees. While I'm narrating my tale, a strong gust of wind sweeps into the yard where we're seated, which had been quiet all night. The wind is blowing so hard that sparks from the fire are going everywhere and nearly reaching where everyone is seated. It got in the way of my tail a little. It everything sort of blew out. And my tail was over. Nobody said anything about it, but I thought it was strange. 
child of rage by unknown. Beth Thomas' tale is both tragic and terrifying. She was a lovely young lady with amazing blue eyes who had lost her mother when she was a year old. Beth and her brother, Jonathan, were abandoned by their biological father, who molested them sexually, when they were taken away by Child Protective Services. She was just 19 months old and Jonathan was only 7 months. The child had been left in his crib all day, every day, resulting in an unusually formed skull. The siblings were adopted by a childless couple who quickly discovered something was wrong with Beth. A documentary had been filmed on the little girl and her exceedingly concerning and aggressive behavior by the time she was six years old. Beth discusses her adoptive parents' practice of putting her in her room to keep her from stabbing them to death in the documentary, which was published in 1990. She also discusses how she sexually molested her younger brother, beat the household dog, and murdered fledgling birds she discovered in a nest. Beth even beat Jonathan's skull onto a concrete floor in an attempt to murder him. Beth was diagnosed with RAD which made it impossible for her to build attachments to caregivers. Sam and Julie, her adoptive parents, finally resorted to controversial therapist Connell Watkins, who volunteered to assist them. Within a year, Beth's symptoms had improved to the point that she was able to express regret for her acts against her brother. Beth Thomas' condition has improved throughout the years. She is a registered nurse and has written a book with the assistance of her second adoptive mother. Horror on Chichijima by Unknown on September 2, 1944, George H. W. Bush, then 20, was operating an Avenger aircraft for the United States Navy. He and eight other pilots were on their way to Chichijima, an island in Japan's Bonin Islands, to assault a radio tower. Japanese forces on the island fired down his plane, as well as the planes of his friends, all of which crashed into the ocean, before bailing out over the river. Bush took careful to dump the four explosives he carried on board the aircraft. All of his companions were kidnapped, tortured, and killed by decapitation or stabbing. Lt. Gen. Yashio Takabana of Japan ordered that four of the bodies be fried and their livers and thighs be eaten with vegetables and soy sauce. Bush, who had evaded arrest, swam in the ocean for hours on a life raft until being rescued by an American submarine. The Japanese officers involved for the heinous cannibal episode on Chichijima were subsequently found guilty of and killed for war crimes at Guam trials. A demon in disguise by unknown. Danielle Harkins, 35, seemed to be a typical, stressed but nice teacher with a good rapport with her kids. She was going through a divorce and custody struggle for her two young children while teaching at the Lealman and Asian Neighborhood Family Center in St. Petersburg, Florida. Harkins started behaving suspiciously soon after her divorce was completed in 2012. She acquired a passionate interest in religion, particularly angels and devils and showed up to the home of a colleague teacher one day, assuring her, you're all right and you don't have any demons. Danielle Harkins persuaded a group of her pupils to help her build a tiny bonfire along the St. Petersburg Pier on June 9, 2012. The pupils assumed their instructor had arranged a campfire evening for them and were absolutely taken aback when she began accusing them of being plagued with demons and demanded that they be exercised. Confused and scared, they half-heartedly followed her directions to dance around the fire while chanting. But they stopped when Harkins urged them to slash each other to release their demons. Harkins, enraged by their rejection, doused one of the young people's hands with perfume and lit them on fire. She sliced another student with a shattered bottle and cauterized the wounds with a key she heated in the fire. To keep the demons out, she compelled numerous others to cut themselves and similarly seal the wounds. It took a few days for the kids to come out about the event. 
And even when Harkins was arrested, the students were not very open with details about what had occurred. Harkins, too, declined to provide any information. She was freed from jail after just six months of incarceration. Pool of blood by unknown. Teachers at Riverwood Primary School in Sydney's southwest were looking forward to a quiet first day back following a peaceful and enjoyable school summer. Nothing, however, could have prepared them for what they discovered when they entered the school's cubby house that day. There was a pool of blood on the floor, which was subsequently determined to be human and to be more than a liter in size. Because of the massive blood loss, whoever's blood it was would have required serious medical attention. According to police, despite a thorough search of the immediate and neighboring locations, no victim was discovered. There are no blood splatters or trails leading to or from the cubby. However, the absence of a casualty was particularly puzzling given that the school was surrounded by a two-meter-high barbed wire fence, which the wounded individual would have been unable to overcome. Tests eventually revealed that the victim was a man. The case is still unsolved. A story by the Fresno case by unknown. On January 20, 2016, a deceased guy was discovered in a smoldering house in downtown Fresno, LT. Joe Gomez, the public information officer for the Fresno Police Department, claimed at the time that 51-year-old local activist John Lang was discovered with knife wounds to his belly and upper back. Later, a spokeswoman for the Fresno County Sheriff denied these statements, claiming that Gomez had provided inaccurate information and that John Lang had three self-inflicted knife wounds to his chest and had set the fire on purpose. Lang posted a Facebook message for a BC30 reporter Corin Hoggard five days before his death was found in the burning residence. Writing, Corrupt Fresno police are going to attempt and murder me this weekend. Probably tonight. This isn't a joke. He went on multiple rants about the Fresno Police Department and County Sheriff's Office being corrupt on his own social media pages. Lang then posted recordings of a security camera outside his home, which he said was being used to spy on him by police officials. Lang was likewise certain that his automobile was being followed. Several blogs and forums have subsequently asserted that Lang was telling the truth when he said he worried the police would murder him. Casting doubt on the bungling of the information initially supplied by LTE, some believe that there are unscrupulous police personnel in the Fresno Police Department who will do everything to quiet Lang. The Girl on Church Hill by Unknown On June 12, 1977, George Childs and his son were traveling along Holocong Road in Buckingham Township when he saw an item in the underbrush of Church Hill, a steep incline. He drove across the train tracks and up the hill to get a better view. He and his kid then came to the nude corpse of a lady lying face down approximately 10 feet down the hill. They drove on to the next home and requested that the owner contact the police. Within 15 minutes, the area was swarmed by police officers. The corpse was turned over by a team of cops and paramedics. And it was only then that the real scope of the crime was disclosed. Sean Eileen Ritterson, 20, had been eviscerated. With practically all of her lower organs taken, her insides had been cleansed and wrapped in a towel. She had bruises on the back of her head from being hit by a large object, as well as many knife wounds on her chest. At the time, authorities suspected the brutality of the murder was part of a sinister ritual or possibly an attempt to rip out an unborn child. Harry Ritterson, the young woman's uncle, was first accused of her murder, and many family members assumed he was the perpetrator as well. He was never prosecuted, though and no additional suspects were ever discovered. The assassination of Sean Ritterson remains unsolved. Kids in the dark by unknown. Growing up poor in the deep south meant that I had to share a lot with my younger brother. Ollie, most of the time, we'd share toys. 
clothing, even skin issues. We even shared a bed until he was six. That made none of us pleased. That changed on my 10th birthday. That year, I only received one gift, and it was a bed of my own. Ollie was immediately envious, and I could see why. He had no choice but to maintain the half-broken frame with the worn-out mattress. The one I'd obtained wasn't much better. But the fact that it wasn't damaged or worn was enough. It was fantastic to sleep apart. It was liberation. I'd no longer have to deal with the unexpected and unexplainable tummy kicks. I'd no longer wake up with Ollie's foot crushed on my neck. Like if he'd stomped on Dracula the night before. At least, that's what I assumed. The scream began immediately after I received my new bed. I assumed Ollie woke up in the middle of the night and yelled because he was terrified. The scream resonated across the small room again. And I realized it wasn't a typical cry. After sunset, the chamber was always completely dark. The one window we had was jammed up against a long leaf pine. And even the full moon threw no light inside. The screech almost drove me insane. Every night, probably about the same hour, these shrill yelps would jolt me awake. It wasn't either my mother or father shouting. Believe me. I knew what it sounded like. The fact that I couldn't determine where it was coming from was the most concerning. It seemed to be absolutely random. It had arrived from someplace near the closet one night. The next thing you know, it's shooting out of a corner of the ceiling. Any expectation I had of having my own space was destroyed every time Ollie stealthily slipped into the bed with me. Shivering violently, he'd grab me and wouldn't let go until it was nearly morning. Most of the time, I'd take his hand in mine and assure him everything would be okay. That it'd be finished by morning, but I was never sure. The screech began to change over time. It started slowly, but gradually it took on the primal hooting sound of an ape issuing a furious warning to avoid from getting deaf. I had to clasp pillows about my ears. Mom and Dad never believed me or Ollie because the object, whatever it was, wouldn't make a sound while they were in the room. Apparently, they couldn't even hear it through the walls, despite the fact that it was loud enough. The screech became louder and louder until I couldn't stand it any longer. Ollie and I were struggling in school, and we simply didn't have any energy. I could sleep more soundly in the midst of class with my head propped up and my eyes open than I could in my own bed at night. Thankfully, we were able to leave the residence about a year later to escape the horrifying nocturnal sounds. I had considered everything, even a child's poor understanding of suicide. At the next residence, there was no trouble. It was a decent white cookie-cutter house on a dead-end street, and the normality was pleasant. Furthermore, when we moved in, a bunk bed was ready for me and Ollie. No more broken beds. No more sharing a second bed that I had to share anyhow. The main issue was determining who would receive the top bunk. I told Ollie that I earned it. After all, I had just acquired a new bed, and he had damaged it by jumping in every night. What? I never did it. He shook his head. I'd always puzzled why the noise ceased as soon as I shared my bed. Now I knew what to do. Roommate Troubles by Unknown this occurred to me at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia a few years ago. I shared a room with a girl called Kara my sophomore year. She was a jazz singer, but her true passion was opera. We got a little room on the sixth level of Juniper Hall, a dorm. The walls were thin, and her late-night singing and vocal practices kept me awake. After about a month of sleep deprivation, I persuaded her to relocate her final night rehearsals to the music studios in the Merriam Theatre building a block away. Kara mentioned about 8pm one evening that she would be rehearsing late for an upcoming performance and wouldn't be home until after midnight. That means I can go to bed earlier. I reasoned. She murmured goodbye and walked away. Holding a cup of coffee and a piece of music, I cooked some grilled cheese and soup, ate it, 
and then started getting ready for bed. My eyes were so heavy by the time I got out of the shower that I couldn't even brush my teeth. I got onto the top bunk of our bunk bed in my PJs. As soon as my head touched the pillow, I was out. I'd like to take a moment to discuss the layout of our residence. The bedroom was immediately to the left as you entered the flat. The bathroom was located within the bedroom, right beyond the bunk beds. In any case, I was awakened by the sound of the flat door shutting. I opened my eyes groggily and checked my phone. It was exactly midnight. I laid over and shut my eyes. Kara entered the room and came to a halt in front of the bunk bed. I'm checking to see whether I'm genuinely sleeping. I reasoned. She fell down on the bed below me, which was odd since she was a stickler about cleaning her teeth and doing her dishes before bed. Then again, exams were approaching, and we were all fatigued. The mattress underneath me squeaked briefly before falling quiet. I couldn't even tell whether she was breathing. I began to fade away once again. I was on the verge of falling asleep again when I was jolted awake by a noise. There's a key in the lock. The opening of the door. Kara walks into our flat, singing an opera area. The mattress underneath me squeaked. The one roughage by unknown. After a decade of private research involving experiments with binaural beat brainwave frequencies, extrasensory cognition, and rare extracts of a South American vine. Dr. Tomas Rosner perfected a technique that allowed one to actually intrude into the psyche and see another's thoughts in the late 1940. Despite having meticulously documented his laborious work, he was unable to locate a single institution willing to even consider reviewing it. Forced to sell his invention, he found a prospective buyer through word of mouth among those from whom he obtained narcotics. Mr. John M. Dunn a voyeuristic connoisseur of the supernatural and the obscene, who had squandered his idle youth in the great libraries of Paris. Those catacombs of departed authors, rummaging among their hordes of dusty and obsolete works. A literary ghoul who disturbed with he gladly agreed to the doctor's asking fee without negotiating. Excited by the idea of discovering such an unusual oddity, Dunn paid Dr. Rosner and leased a cheap home near Sing Sing Prison under an assumed name after he had mastered the functioning of the gadget. In the eternal night, as the criminals slept fitfully, he looted their memories cell by cell, free to relish the forbidden thrill of robberies, molestations, moonlight killings, in private, without regret or consequence. Within a month, the prisoners discovered striking similarities in the nightmares from which they had all abruptly awakened. First, processions of alligators and tortoises filed through a swamp crowded with faceless people and shrieking orchids. Second, a shadow man at whom they looked directly but could never quite see, would watch them in utter stillness from an empty house while invisible hands probed behind their eyes as they slept. Their descriptions of the home, including its position just outside the walls, were similar. It was agreed that the first of them to be paroled or freed would hunt for this home to see whether it truly existed and study the root of their distressing nightmares. A few days after their release, their chosen spy was able to inform them via smuggled code that not only was the house real, but he had broken into it at night and discovered a gaunt, mustached man in a silk smoking jacket seated bolt upright. Head thrust back, both eyes gaping, mouth stuck open in a stiffened gasp, clenched hands gripping the arms of his chair, in front of a scientific machine. A handwritten journal on the desk detailed his exploits, prying unrestrainedly through their psyches, plundering the haunted memories of criminal after criminal, seeking ever more shameful and audacious experiences until... On July 7th, he wrote of his overwhelming desire to witness telepathically the next execution in the prison's notorious electric chair. It started as a leak by unknown. June was no exception to the wet season, 
which started in early July. When he saw rainfall falling from his dining room ceiling, he was unsurprised. He shrugged and put a big pot under the leak, expecting it to cease on its own. However, the rain continued to fall, and before he knew it, the pot was on the verge of overflowing. He had to dump the water first thing in the morning and immediately after he got home from work, he eventually noticed water damage at the source of the leak. The white ceiling had faded to a dingy shade of brown. He studied the forecast and saw that it will rain intermittently for the next 10 days. Because the guy was concerned that the ceiling might mildew and become a costly repair, he contacted a local handyman. Unfortunately, the guy could not sign for the repairs to be completed, only his landlord could. It was a vexing policy. The guy attempted to contact his landlord but was unable to reach him. He left him a couple voicemails explaining how the harm was becoming worse and worse. The guy had no idea why his landlord had not returned his calls. They typically spoke at least twice a month. Finally, he reasoned that he would not be held liable for any losses incurred. The huge bang woke the guy awake one night. He hurriedly switched on his bedroom light and saw an overturned table with a big form sprawled over it. He raced out of his flat and dialed 911, choking at the stench. The guy sat at the police station, his shoulders draped in a blanket and a coffee cup in his hands. He was correct about one thing. There was a dead body in his ceiling. And the water had saturated it so much that it caved in under the weight. So far, the corpse had been rendered unrecognizable owing to moisture and was being autopsied. While he waited, the guy dialed his landlord's number and eventually reached him. Terrified as he narrated the situation, his landlord was also concerned. And the guy begged with him to accompany him to the police while he gave his statement. As a detective approached, the guy halted and dropped his phone, wondering whether the deceased had been recognized. His blood suddenly turned cold and he shook his head in dread. The corpse belonged to his landlord, Richard Thompson, who had died more than a year before. That wasn't what bothered him the most. If his landlord was no longer alive, who was posing as him? Instant messaging by unknown. It all began on March 14th, the night of my parents' 20th wedding anniversary. If memory serves, it was a beautiful, bright day, surprisingly warm for this early in the season. My parents had reserved a table at our favorite Italian restaurant because the lovely weather was appropriate for the ambience of the day. Being married for 20 years is clearly a major event. So my parents had booked a seat at our favorite Italian restaurant. Of course, this was a formal event. So I was dressed to the nines. It was 5.33 p.m. And I was just about to fix my tie when my phone rang. I'd gotten a message. That's unusual. I thought, since it never occurs, I double-checked the message. It was from my mother. The message was a tangle of numbers and letters. But I could make out the intelligible phrase, please assist me. It should go without saying that this deeply concerned me. So I instantly responded, are you okay? Almost immediately, I received another text that said, oops, pocket text. I signed with all the relief I could muster and began to prepare. I got another message a few minutes later. This time from my father, I examined the content. And it was once again a jumbled mess of characters and numbers, with the message please assist me hidden inside. Despite how creepy this was, my father was usually a joker, so I assumed he was just messing around until I received another text stating, oops, pocket text, this has caused panic. Panic, pure and simple. I got the identical message from my sister exactly half a minute later. This cannot be a coincidence. It simply couldn't happen. I began to hurry to the restaurant in a panicked mood. I got approximately a quarter of the way before being pulled over by a police officer. Main road is blocked, he remarked, referring to a large automobile collision. 
This was the precise moment that I discovered what had occurred. I requested to inspect the wreckage, which I'm amazed was granted. When I arrived, it wasn't the wreckage of the automobile or the flames rising from the damaged vehicle that drew my attention. No, I was frightened to see my mother, father, and sister's dead bodies. I inquired about the estimated time of their deaths, and they were all killed instantaneously by the crash at 5.32. Darkness in the rearview mirror by unknown. In the summer of 2013, I was driving home alone from a party on Highway 902. It was almost midnight, and the sky was pitch dark. I was tense as usual at night. I turned off the radio and could only hear the muffled sound of tires on pavement and the monotonous hum of the motor. I peered into the center rearview mirror and saw nothing but blackness through the back window. I'm sure I glanced back and saw nothing. I'm certain of it. There was nothing except the apparently infinite darkness of the night. I remember it so well because a vehicle passed me on the left about 10 seconds later. Turn on the headlights. I experienced one of those unexpected adrenaline rushes. Like when you think you see a person outside your bedroom window but it's only a tree or when you wake up in the middle of the night with the fear of falling. Nothing had been behind me ten seconds before. Suddenly, an automobile appears. I shivered the rest of the way home, knowing something was wrong. I discovered two sets of scrapes towards the rear of my vehicle the following morning. One was on the left rear and the other on the right. The automobile was rather ancient. They might have been there for months, but it was the first time I recall seeing them. In retrospect, there are two possible explanations for what transpired that night. One of the possibilities, this other automobile had materialized behind me within 10 seconds of checking my mirror, due to some malfunction in reality or something paranormal, like some strange ghost stuff or something. The second choice, on the other hand, makes my blood run cold every time I think about it. It didn't occur to me until months later, but it makes me even more afraid of driving alone at night. Option number two, the automobile was ordinary. It had come up behind me and passed me to my left, something enormous. Broad and dark as the night had clung to the back of my automobile, obstructing my vision through the glass and leaving deep scratches on the sides, and I'd unintentionally brought it home with me. This new old house by Banotov Hell 821. My boyfriend and I acquired an ancient home. He's in charge of the new construction, such as transforming the kitchen into a master bedroom. While I'm in charge of wallpaper removal, the prior owner had every wall and ceiling painted. Removing it is very painful, but strangely rewarding. The finest sensation is receiving a lengthy peel, comparable to how your skin peels after a sunburn. I'm not sure about you, but I make a game of peeling, trying to get the longest piece before it tears. Every room has a person's name and a date written under a corner part of paper. Curiosity got the better of me one night, and I googled one of the names and found the person was genuinely missing. With the missing date matching the date beneath the wallpaper, I produced a list of all the names and dates the following day. Each name was for a missing individual with dates that matched. We called the cops, who immediately sent a crime scene investigation team. I overheard one of the technicians remark, Yup, it's human. Human? What exactly is human? Ma'am, where have you taken the stuff you took off the walls? You weren't removing wallpaper here. Timekeeper by Gridster 2 On his 10th birthday, he received the watch, except for the fact that it was ticking down. It was a typical grey plastic wristwatch. That's all the time you've got left in the world, son. Make good use of it. He did, in fact, do so. The youngster, now a man, enjoyed life to the fullest while the clock ticked away. He climbed mountains and swam in the sea. He chatted, laughed, lived, and loved. The guy was never scared since he knew how much time he had left. The watch eventually started its last countdown.
the elderly guy stood there, contemplating all he had done, everything he had accomplished. 5. He shook hands with his old business colleague, a guy he'd known for years as a friend and confidant. 4. His dog approached and licked his palm, earning him a pat on the head for its company. 3. He embraced his kid, knowing he'd done a terrific job as a parent. 2. He kissed his wife on the lips one more time. 1. The elderly gentleman smiled and closed his eyes. Nothing occurred after that. The watch beeped once before turning off. The guy stood there, still very much alive. You'd think he'd be ecstatic right then and there. Instead, the guy was terrified for the first time in his life. That brings us to the end of this episode of Creepy Dystopia. More terrifying stories are on the way soon. So subscribe and hit that like button. By the way, did you know this show is available as a podcast under the same name? It is amongst other platforms available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. With that out of the way, thanks for tuning in and stay safe wherever you are.